fidget chronograph. Like I'm literally timing nothing. I just like the buttons. And the other one is timing inconsequential events. The inconsequential graph. I was actually thinking of a chronograph that has a bunch of extra pushers on it because it's just fun to push. It's things to click. Do I want to spin something? Do I want to turn something? Do I want to wind something? Do I want to press on something? Do I want to pull on something? Do I want to unscrew something? Just whatever you feel like doing, there's a way to do that on your watch. The Bobbit watch. On this week's show, we talk bronze, titanium, and aluminium watches, because us Europeans know how to speak properly. We find out what you all actually use chronographs for, we ask what Omega mean by tiny device massive change, while thinking of Rolex's massive device tiny change, as we get a hands-on with their new dive watch. We count the number of Seikos, hear about a Panerai press release, and review new watches from Shinola and Chopar, but what we all really want is a Boppet watch. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to a blog to watch weekly. We are joined by David and we are joined by a slightly blurry eyed Ariel for reasons that we'll not go into. Needless to say though that the house is now plus one and so Ariel is now hiding out in his workroom in order to get away from all fatherly responsibilities. Uh, but we'll just leave it at that. But if you want to send gifts and presents, I'm sure he'll gratefully receive them all. So, you know, feel free to send him something. How are you, gentlemen? Good. Blurry eyed is right. But excited to get back into the watch mix i remember at moments like this that you know watches are a leisure pursuit for many people and when you need leisure most people go away from work when i need leisure i need work <laughs> david how are you likewise yeah i i think it's uh it's a good time to get to get started and, and see where it takes us uh this new year Grand. Well, it is going to be a very full show this morning so let us rack on we're going to have a quick chat this morning about materials, one of our favourite subjects. We seem to keep coming round to this on a regular basis, but there are three articles on the website this week. One about a bronze watch, one about an aluminium watch, and one about a titanium watch. David has trailed his titanium article for a couple of weeks now, and it is now out the Rolex's first attempt at a titanium watch. So, David, for those that actually couldn't be bothered reading it, mm tell us what it's all about and what your conclusion is it's been on the site for four days now so not that long it's the first ever all titanium rolex watch and what's funny is that someone has, has made an offensive critical point saying like, this is not the first titanium rolex because somebody wore a prototype once in titanium and i'm like okay but you know we all know what we're talking about <laughs> when we say first i mean just because a prototype existed once of, of one watch or another it doesn't mean that you know it's, it's not the first it's totally the first and it's all titanium the bracelet, the case, the bezel, and of course there's a serochrome bezel insert as well. Yeah, I, I went hands-on with it. Uh, I believe this is a final piece that is for, for retail. I mean, it has all the stickers and everything on it. And to be honest, the, the quality was really, really, well, all over the place, to be honest. The, the case was beautifully made. The bracelet was, you know, it looked like it was finished with a barbed wire of sorts. And, and if you look at the pictures, you will see that it, it does look like it, it doesn't look like any other brushed finish I've ever seen. It, it, it looks charred, the metal, basically. And then the biggest and strangest disappointment of all is the dial quality. It was so bad. Uh, it, it looked... Honestly, if this was like a fake watch, I would I would not second guess it. You know, that's how blurry the lines were and the kerning on the text was just all over the all over the shop. And, you know, again, once you look at the pictures, you will see that it's it's really a weird dial uh, for a Rolex. And it's not the, the quality that we are used to from Rolex watches. So 
So it's an interesting watch. It had to happen sooner or later that Rolex embraced the warm metal option or alternative to steel, which is titanium. And I look forward to seeing more watches in this metal from Rolex because it's light and comfy and there's big potential in it. But typical Rolex is just taking it really slow and easy by launching a watch that everyone immediately recognizes as totally and entirely unwearable and indeed pointless. I mean, when you said hands-on, I think hands, plural, is the operative because it requires two hands to actually lift it, move it, do anything with it because it's so enormous. Why do you think it lacks the obvious Rolex finishing quality? Is this watch too big just because it was somebody, I can never remember which way around it is, short-sighted or long-sighted? <laughs> did, did they think they were making a smaller titanium watch but just gave it to someone <laughs> who did all the dimensions wrong? Is this one of these things where they measured in inches <laughs> but specced up in centimetres? Yeah, it was an imperial mix-up uh, in Switzerland for some reason. For... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've seen the pictures on the article and you're spot on. It, it looks like the whole thing has been magnified. Yeah. Like, you know, the brush quality is as if it was done at a scale larger because you can literally see the unbrushed bits of metal between the brushing. Yeah. It's it's really it's, it's like it's been scoured with a Brillo pad. Exactly. Rather than actually machined properly with whatever it is you use to do. It's a brushing. very deep brushing. It's way too deep. I mean, it's almost we know that titanium is a very different metal than steel, which means you need slightly different polishing heads and things like that. It does feel a bit amateur-y. It's sort of like Rolex first tried to use the same machines as steel, and they're like and rather than be like, this doesn't quick look right, they're like, well, let's just go with it. <laughs> yeah. We know that they can do titanium because they have all those great titanium Tudor watches and it's in the yep. same family. So all you can say is that we're going for a particular like type of look. I think that David, though, is very spot on. I, I think the dial, it, it is all over the place. Like, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's just something that feels super ridiculous so that I, I can't wait to hear people joking about the many lines of text. Because if you ha include the line at the very top of the dial and the bottom, I mean, like, that that is like, was it nine lines of text? Mm, yeah. <laughs> like <it's... laughs> all in different sizes. Like, no two line is the same yeah. font size, basically. It's yeah. totally all over the place. It looks like one of those, like, ransom notes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Rolex ransom. Yeah. Yeah. If you want your real Rolex back, please send, you know. <laughs> please send 36,090 of your dollars. Your watch is yeah. waiting for you at 11,000 meters deep, <laughs> sir. Yeah, and that's almost the joke. Like the real value the watch has, this incredible water depth, is something that no one can actually test. So it's like mm. something you just sort of have to take Rolex's Stupid. word for it. I'm not saying Rolex is lying by any means, but it's like... You can't, it's a, it's a, it's a theoretical watch. It's probably, this is probably the most emotional watch release of the year. Hmm. I just don't get where the skill is considered that in order to make something 11,000 meters water resistant, all they've done is add more stuff to it. No, yeah. no. The complicated thing is the machine that tests it. Not the yes, watch. Yes, exactly. The machine that figures out if it can go that deep. This is an above water machine. That is where all the engineering went into. And I'm not even joking. That That is the complicated part. No, no, I, I, I believe you. I just think it's strange that, yeah, I mean, effectively, they've just made it bigger. I mean, I could make a, I could make a 12,000 meter dive watch if I just added another two mil of yes. steel and, and crystal and all the rest of it to the Rolex. I don't get where the engineering <laughs> now is. And I think you're spot on about the whole Tudor thing. People are talking about this watch as if, oh, this is Rolex experimenting as to how to do titanium. Rolex know how to do titanium. They own Tudor, for goodness sake. Yeah. 
do they not speak to each other? Is, is, there, <laughs> is there some sort of Chinese wall that prevents them from speaking to a company which they own, found and run, saying, guys, could somebody just tell us how to do this? Can we borrow your machines for an afternoon while we brush these? They wanted to go with a weird look. And I think what's sort of the strangest about it is that it looks too organic. You know, David did a great job of putting these like macro shots of seeing the brushing. And you can see that the lines are not all consistently in the same direction. The fact that they go in different directions is mm -hmm. I think what gives it almost like a, think of like an organic texture, like a zebra striping or a wood grain. Like it, it looks too organic because mm. Rolex is supposed to look like a machine. It's supposed to be industrially perfect. And then you have this organic nature. You have these lines that aren't all vertical. They kind of go in some slightly different directions. And that's just a very weird thing to see. Rolex certainly seems to have done it intentionally. Again, maybe someone there really likes this look, but it's, I think, not what most people wanted to expect from a sort of a titanium Rolex. I, again, David's the one that saw it in person, so I'm just looking at the good pictures, but it's it's a Thank bit you. it's a bit weird. Do you know what a Kellogg's Topaz is? It's like a breakfast cereal from Kellogg's. Uh, I don't know if we have Topaz. Maybe we have a, a but yes, okay, cereal. Yeah, it's a cereal. It, if you if you Google Kellogg's Topaz, T O P P A S, it's exactly the same texture uh, as the as the, the the titanium finishing by Rolex. Now I have to know. Yeah. Kellogg's Topaz. All right, that's like what we would call shreddy tweet. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's totally so, what it is. Really small shreddy tweet. Yes, yeah, exactly. You're dead right. Maybe they've used that. Maybe this is the first Kellogg's collaboration. <laughs> yeah, we, we have it as shredded. We, I've never heard t t this one. It's like tapas, <laughs> but not. <laughs> Kellogg's tapas for space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, it is. It, that's exactly what it is. It's funny because you have these traditional Swiss polishing techniques that are always after plants, like the barley corn thing or, the, or this strand barley of corn. grass or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, no, they have, that's a lot. It's like the barley cord decoration. Yes, so I guess maybe that's what this is. I mean, look, it is Switzerland. There's a lot of nods to the agrarian culture there. Maybe we've just discovered the secret of what this is, watch is really all about. So the, the Japanese have infinity number seasons and the Swiss have grass. grass. Every, uh, yeah. Every type of grass. Grains inspire every watch, okay? They're all grain inspired. To be fair, I can hear people screaming already, but it's a tool watch. It doesn't have to be pretty or whatever. Sure, but if you look at every single other Rolex, or maybe, okay, I will, I will be fair, like 95% of Rolex still watches, they're jewelry. You can buy them in, in, in all polished 18 karat gold. So, and, and even the steel <laughs> often is just so freaking polished in so many of the professional line watches by Rolex that Rolex has let go of this rugged tool watch finishing for, again, so many of its collections. You can buy some of them on a completely brushed bracelet and stuff, but most of them have polished elements. And, and when you pick them out, when you see a fresh Rolex watch out of the box, I say this because they are so vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to scratches and stuff that you have to take it out and it looks like jewelry even more than Omega's and some of the other watches and they look delicate. And you know, this is a big departure. And honestly, I, what part of the reason why I was looking forward to Rolex doing the titanium is because I wanted for them to create some sort of a jewelry like pretty take on titanium. And so far it doesn't appear to be the case. So I hope they will, they will find a way around this because right now as it stands, Citizen, Seiko, Grand Seiko, and a number of others have them licked, basically, when it comes to finishing this material. Rolex has the ultimate sort of excuse. No matter how many, if they make a mistake, they're just like, well, we're allowed to do experiments, or 
We're allowed to try new things from time to time, aren't we, guys? Isn't that what you complain, <laughs> that we never try anything new? And uh, sure. what we complain about is they don't put enough of their good new stuff out because they're always afraid of it undermining their other things. Yeah. It's sort of like they're so afraid to be like, guys, we don't want steel to look bad. We have to make titanium not look as good as steel. Like it's it, it's like this weird protectionist thing. Like they like they almost they can't make it to look too good. Like as it needs to look like it's been hobbled together. Like that's the only thing I can understand because those discussions do happen internally at Rolex where they're worried about you know like they can't come out with the really like the super accurate silicon movements because they're afraid of what it'll make other movements look like. There's this weird considerations they make. They never want any old Rolex to look of a lower value. This is something that happens all the time. So like I, I'm not saying it's the reason why, but it's it wouldn't surprise me. If they're like, well, we can't make it look as good as steel. Like, <laughs> I, 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 it just just it wouldn't surprise me if that's actually a consideration. But cool watch, super weird. And I think David has pointed out some very real flaws that maybe to the right person will just give it a bunch of character. But the different sizes of the text on the dial and the different fonts are starting to drive me nuts. <laughs> I, I don't wish to harp on because this wasn't supposed to be a Rolex show. But... Is it not the case that the three lines of text immediately above the hands, they're far too close together? <laughs> There's so much wrong with the text. The spacing's all wrong. <laughs> what happened to the... Rolex loves typographers. I know they do. Yeah, they have... <laughs> Even the kerning, uh, like the spacing in between the different letters in the word Rolex is wrong. Mm. So it, it, it's so bad. I actually went to the Rolex.com website and Oyster Perpetual is also all wrong. It, it, especially if you look at the word perpetual and you see how the different letters are spaced or squished together sometimes and they are sometimes far apart. And the strangest thing is that it's the same on the computer generated images on rolex.com so and and this drove me down this rabbit hole that i'm researching right now on kerning on rolex styles because it's all over the shop for different watches and maybe this will be a way to date different rolex watches in the world of uh, of scattered or random serial numbers so I, I looked up for example ariel's review of his submariner no date from like i don't know 2014 or something like that and the word perpetual is perfectly spaced out, perfectly. And then once you see like newer watches, the P and the E are together, and then the R is like in the middle of nowhere, and then the T and the U are all over the place. And it's, and why would you get that so wrong? Like, it's just like a handpicked thing, like we are in the 1400s or something. I think it sounds very much to me like the point about a, this being a kidnap watch there is somebody <laughs> sitting in geneva in a cupboard and this is just a cry for help yeah, if you if you remove the dial on the back it's like help <laughs> it's scratching. yeah exactly help me anyway we go from the sublime to the ridiculous or vice versa i'm not sure which so the the rolex is twenty six thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollars something yeah like twenty six twenty six thousand yeah. dollars in titanium we go to ripley's article an affordable bronze watch this is san martin or san martin which is a 220 dollar bronze watch looks very much the part of a bronze watch can i remind everyone that bronze is not a luxury material i'm just gonna remind <laughs> everyone again yeah but it's neither titanium surely titanium is actually hard to machine bronze is like known for not being hard to machine <laughs> it's been around for five thousand years okay but if rolex were to make a bronze watch how would they put their oh as it is an oh we're, we're allowed to make mistakes we're just trialing this out <laughs> 
I don't know how how they could make it any uglier than this. That that would be a struggle. <laughs> but they already did that with Tudor, right? So I think you know I I, I like that they have Tudor for the for these kinds of things. And but that also means that yes. they don't get a pass when it comes to doing something poorly on the first try because you know you you already had all this chance to experiment with it and make prototypes and whatnot. Whatever, but this is a great value for two hundred dollars. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, for two hundred bucks, it's absolutely epic. Uh, what do you think of bronze as a material? I don't have that much experience of wearing bronze watches and seeing how quickly they go green or what they leave behind on your wrist. Mm. Any particular experience, gentlemen? Look, bronze is a pretty color, and you can't get the look of bronze with the sort of coating over steel or something like that. The closest is gold, <laughs> and that's a lot more expensive. So from a fashion perspective, I completely understand why bronze is very popular. It's warm. It goes with a lot of things better than steel. It matches certain dial colors in this nice way, like green, for example. Just green and bronze together. It's just a very nice, you know, looking thing. But as a material, it's a prototype material, or as David said, an ancient material. We moved on from that age. If you want a basic metal that isn't expensive, steel is the only way to go, in my opinion. Uh, titanium would be a step up. And, you know, a grade two titanium case can be a bit boring. You get into sort of a, a, an interesting polish for grade five that you typically have to find the more expensive price points. What I think is interesting at these price levels that you can find sometimes are the ceramic cases, right? Because those are scratch resistant and cool. So I like bronze. I can understand it. But... I'm, I'm not a big fan of the patina. They scratch easily. So they're cool, but I would actually buy it at these cheap levels because there's a lot of expensive bronze watches that will age and look kind of bad, and maybe you'll feel bad because you spent, I don't know, several thousand dollars and up on it. Well, you say that you know the material to go for is steel, but our final quick material look this week is to an article from Bulgari, and this is about the Bulgari aluminium. Mm -hmm. I really like aluminium as a material for watches and i particularly like is it because you say it differently than me is that why you like it <laughs> some cultural identity it's not different it's correct ah uh. okay it's correct Al it's spelled differently i think is it not aluminium yeah 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 aluminum. Aluminum. so aluminum aluminum <laughs> so aluminium it's the same thing i particularly like it as a material i think it has some of the softness of bronze yeah I think it it wears really well in that it scratch. I like the way it scratches up over hmm. time. It does it a bit quicker than steel, but yeah, I just really like it. It's lighter. I think it's a really good kind of middle middle it's not, material. I worry about the scratches, but yeah. it is a nice material. It feels nice. You can anodize it, which offers you the ability to color it in a, in sort of a nice way. You can't do that with a lot of other things. It is really lightweight, like impressively so. It's kind of funny because in most people's lives, you know, the aluminum or aluminium is like soda cans. Yeah. So yeah. I keep thinking of like a like a watch made out of soda cans. This is sort of true. Yeah. But I mean, aluminum has a lot of exciting uh, uses industrially, you know, uh, aerospace, high end, you know, car frames and things like that. Hmm. It's it's it, it is it is a pretty great material. But I think that most people assume that it's going to be a bit more durable than it is. So the the goal in every single aluminum case I've seen has been to protect the aluminum with sort of like buffers or guards or things like that. So Bulgari does that in a lot of their things with like the bezel, for example. They're trying to shield it. So you can see 
that there's this sort of knowledge in, on part of the watchmaker to protect the aluminum wherever possible. I can't think of too many other watch brands that are known Aluminium watches. Hamilton. My favorite was the the FP Jorn. Yeah. So before right, okay. it was before the um, the sport one was made in titanium, it was aluminum. Yeah. It's right, it's okay. a cool material. It's and it's only two hundred years old, not five thousand. So it's a more modern material. Uh, <laughs> and, and and to be fair, you know, if if you go hands on with one of these Bulgari uh, aluminum or aluminium watches, um, they feel great. And sure, they are not 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 cheap by any means, but. You know, for, I don't know, it's like three grand, three and a half thousand dollars, something like that. For a beater watch or something that is stylish and that you can wear daily and go swimming and then just travel with and whatever else. It, it really does feel very, very good the way it's put together and the way the different links swivel and the rubber on the bezel and all that. So even though it's made from rubber and aluminum stuff that people like to frown upon when it comes to luxury watches, the, the actual feel of the watch... Yeah, uh, it's really, really good. I was really surprised when I first saw it in like 2020, I think, when they brought this collection back. And I was like, wow, this this was way better than I expected. So I think, you know, people looking for, for, for a daily wear in this price range should definitely go and check it out if they like the looks of it. The price point of this watch, I think, makes this one of the best value watches of its at its level mm. that there is you know this is at the kind of tudor expensive uh, cheap tudor expensive oris it's it's in a quite well i put it, actually put it this way because we'll come on to the minute the brick watch from a few weeks ago <laughs> is like 700 dollars cheaper than this aluminium bulgari i mean case closed yeah. in terms of the brick watch yeah, yeah. you know I would have think with a brand name like Bulgari, they could easily have pitched this at six, seven, eight thousand dollars, and people might think it's expensive, but I don't think people would go, "Oh, that's horrific." Yeah. Well, let's talk about what they've done, and this is interesting from a design exercise. You have this thing that they like to do in Italian design, where they take these sort of like common industrial things but make them beautiful and comfortable and, and high end. And from the very genesis of this watch, the case. The lugs are designed from door hinges. You have rubber and aluminum, which again, especially when this watch came out in the late 90s originally, were, were not thought of as luxury in any way, shape, or form, right? Rubber was just not associated with luxury. So it was it was very much a challenging watch. It was challenging this sort of traditional idea that your luxury sport watch had to be a particular material. So this was very light. These materials are, are ones that people have never really seen. The case was beautiful, but really sort of industrial in its theme. And I think that's what's really good about this. This, is, this watch is an excellent design exercise and material exercise. That it says Bulgari is just sort of is part of it, but it doesn't even need to to have appeal. Because again, this is, you know, if you're into industrial design and the playfulness that can come about that when it meets luxury, that's exactly what this um, aluminium collection is all about, in my opinion. We've got an episode that myself and David recorded with Bulgari. And when you speak to them, you know, at the heart of it, as you say, is taking ordinary products that people would reject or effectively discard and making luxury goods around the theme and this does it in absolute spades. And you should check out our special episode as well while you're at it. Ariel raises an excellent point when it comes to rubber being, you know, then at the time being an, a new material. Uh, you know, like Hublot and Endium Genève existed long before that, but it was not before, you know, not uh, not before Biver joined uh, Hublot and made this whole thing of, of um, about um, a gold case watch and a rubber strap in like 2005, 2006. This came way before that. And today we see Patek, 
you know, launch like a rubber strap watch with the with the Aquanaut, which looks frankly ridiculous. But it shows that even brands like Patek and Rolex have embraced this rubber strap thing. But Bulgar came 20 years before that. And, you know, to look and people sometimes like to praise luxury brands are being the first or doing something you know like some some sort of a pioneering design work or or material study or something like that and i feel like bulgari deserves a lot of credit for what it has done which is my first point and my second is that if you look at this watch or basically any other bulgari it's always its own thing and even if you don't like the way it looks it's not rejurgitative it's not like oh we are making this watch that's a blue dial steel bracelet nonsense that you don't recognize everything is its own thing and and this way, if you buy a Bulgari, it's, it's like, you know, it's in the top five or maybe like top 10% of brands where, where there's true identity across every single um, product line. And I feel like that that's a huge thing for them. And, and again, if you if you don't like the design and the, the, the fact that it says Bulgari a thousand times, I totally understand that. But at least it's its own thing and it's not been watered down. Good stuff. Just as we mentioned our special show that we recorded with Bulgari, we have a new episode out with Uzi Narda. I, I have spent ages trying to pronounce that correctly. I think I give myself about eight and a half out of ten. <laughs> Having watched all the Frenchmen correctly pronouncing Uzi Narda, as opposed to adding extra letters in, which me as a Scotsman tends to do. <laughs> so go and check out that episode. That's a retrospective of all things freak. Even if I do say so ourselves, David, I think we did a sterling job <laughs> and got, got loads out of that episode. So fascinating insight into the freak and actually just how rare it is. Yeah, that was a good time. So go and check that out. We have Instagram tease from Omega. Tiny device, massive change is... <laughs> The tagline they're going for something is coming later this month any suggestions if, if if somebody says to you tiny device massive change what are you thinking david i'm, I'm not even sure because i feel like uh, we've already seen silicium uh, hair springs and highly anti-magnetic uh, watches from omega so the fact that it's uh, it, it's just saying i'm just hoping tiny device massive change january 26th and it's basically a teaser that shows a new Hairspring, and I know that this uh, the the patent on um, on silicium hairspring manufacturing has expired in November 2022. It was a 20 year patent of sorts, but Omega already had access to that through the Swatch Group. So I'm I'm really not sure what is, what else is there that they can do or which collection they can apply it to. It's a Speedmaster. Okay, so okay, so that's my my uh, question answered right there. So maybe. This hairspring is coming to the Speedmaster, or maybe there's like a master chronometer movement to be added to the Moonwatch or something like that. Ariel? I agree with David that this is probably something related to do with movements. The Swatch Group and Omega have been extremely cryptic in the past with teasers, as has Rolex for that matter. They used to do teasers before Baselworld and things, and like they were very cryptic on purpose. Hmm. I do think that Omega likes to do movement stories from time to time. They did one not too long ago with, you know, the musical watch, the chronograph minute repeater. I don't think that they were happy with how well it was received because it was just ultra expensive and kind of weird. So it would it would not surprise me if they have a little bit more of a, a mainstream technical story that the sort of sport watch lovers would like. They have to keep Speedmaster interesting all the time. There hasn't been sort of a Speedmaster story that has 
I don't know. Like the Speedmaster keeps going more and more high end, and I feel like they're continually alienating <laughs> this demographic that used to get excited by the Speedmaster. They want it to be this collectible watch, you know, like a Royal Oak or something like that, which I can understand. So I'm hoping that it's going to be something that's going to be a little bit more tool, utilitarian, but it could be, again, a new hairspring and a $50,000 watch for all I know. <laughs> what is the percentage chances that you're going to groan when <laughs> Omega finally tell you what this cryptic message is? What's the groan percentile on this? Hi, because it's either going to be, yeah, it's going to be too expensive or or underwhelming. <laughs> There's going to be some reason that that one of us isn't going to want to wear it, right? We're not going to be like, oh, that's the Omega for us. David's going to be like, who's going to wear that? Rick's going to be like, that's too expensive. And I'm like, nobody wants that. I, I was just wondering what the retail is on the Speedmaster Moonwatch these days. I know that it's gone through a series of price hikes, but maybe it's not expensive enough still. So maybe with the <laughs> addition of a... If a new hairspring, they can they can increase the price even even higher. Maybe that that's what it is. If they could do something like simple, like you know, make the Speedmaster 100 meters water resistant, I'd be celebrating. Hmm. Or give us an automatic version. There's history to preserve. <laughs> history. It's just this is the thing that bugs me. There are Speedmasters limited editions that are 100 meters water resistant. There are a couple of them. So why anyway? That's a hobby horse. I'm getting off it already. Okay, forget it. Move on. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Probably, yeah, grown-tastic by the time it comes As on. As the people at Omega would say, let us run our company. <laughs> we know what we're doing. We're Omega. Last week's show this week. We have quite a lot of last week's show this week, to be fair. First up, some audio as promised or as trailed, as predicted from Pippi. Happy New Year, Pippi here. Richard, you asked me to have a look at the Seiko numbers for 2022 for you. Seiko released 278 new models in 2022, 80 of which rarely, that's 30%. Grand Seiko, 78 new models with 38 limited editions, that's 49%. So in the main trading group, 356 models, which equates to one a day. That doesn't include Cradle, Alba, Wired S2, and probably a myriad of store-sponsored models. So overall, Seiko released over 500 watches, which is coming on for one and a half a day. All the info I've got is mainly sourced from plus9time.com, which is Anthony Cable's brilliant website. So must give him credit for putting all the numbers together. Just remains to say, if you want to talk about football, give me a shout because your boys obviously let you down in the World Cup. Talk to you soon, guys. Okay, Pippi has done the research and has got some help from the, uh, Anthony, I think, at plus9time.com. Go check out that website and go and check out Pippi account at uh, on instagram as well this basically shows that seiko more or less have released one watch a day ariel you asked for statistics we provided you the statistics what do you think of the statistics the thing is i'm not surprised like i love these numbers that we'll go over and actually it it, it turns out that it's closer to about one and a half watches a day so he yeah, said something yeah. like across the group like something like 500 new models and so we all have this instinct right we're sitting there we're receiving it I'm seeing it, You're, David's looking at it, we're rolling our eyes, but we don't really have the hard numbers in front of us. Like it's an instinct. But then like we see the numbers that not only validate our instinct, but actually make Seiko look pretty darn silly. And I don't want to say that their instinct to make money is silly. I mean, I want Seiko to be a rich company. That's a good thing. But this particular strategy of theirs is so clearly been being made fun of and pushed back on. <laughs> the thing is not all of these watches received 
this press releases and things like that. So I think what's interesting on my end is I'm realizing just how restrained Sega has been. <laughs> I'm like, you mean I could have got 500 press releases oh, as opposed to the uh, 100 or 200 I received over the year? I have no idea. Like there could have been a lot more. Look, at the end of the day, we all love Seiko and we want them to do well, but they're like, they're kind of going crazy right now and we don't know what they're going to look like when they settle down. And I think that a lot of people are sort of apprehensive. They're like, Seiko, you're going through a lot of changes right now. When you relax, call me, we'll chat, we'll go to dinner. But <laughs> they just seem to be like a little bit, just a little extra right now, you know what I mean? I wonder if this reveals what the problem is, David, with the press release sites and the quality of the JPEGs. I think Seiko have got like a limited space Dropbox yes, account. Yes, they literally don't have so the bandwidth. They, they, <laughs> they have like a maximum 100 megabytes that they can use in a year to send images and they've got to divide it by the number of models right. they've got. So each image can only be 50 kilobytes and that's it. That's all you're getting. It, that's what's happening. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, what they're going for is like buying a Seiko watch is like buying a Nike shoe. Uh, you, you're not really sure which one you, you want. You just go to the store and you will you will be greeted with like a hundred different Air Maxes and whatever else. And you'll, you'll probably find one that you like from all these different collections. But you're not sure which exact color specifications and combinations and prices or whatever you will find when you go and buy a shoe and buying a Seiko watch to me is largely the same thing even though they are considerably more expensive than a shoe but then again you can wear them for longer so it evens out averages out but again you go to a Seiko boutique and at this point you can expect to see like 10 15 20 like important pieces and then a whole bunch of others that came out literally last week <laughs> right and you were not expecting or looking forward to so it's it's all over the place really a little bit for psycho for sure i need to add some context here if people are wondering why we're why do we care why do we care that seiko came out with you know between just for seiko between seiko and grand seiko i think it was 356 right so there's like credor yeah. and there's a couple of other sub brands but 356 that's you know about about one a day why why is that an issue if we like seiko what does it matter i think this is where it comes down to you are a watch lover. You need to make some type of decisions. You plan your purchases. Nobody just buys a watch. We've done studies about this. People spend several months, if, lo if not longer, planning out their purchase. And you need to feel comfortable. If you're throwing other good options all the time in your face, it breaks down that natural decision-making cycle. You can't make a decision because like new options are thrown at you all the time. And in my opinion, and from what I've seen, it can it can cause a bit of paralysis where you don't buy things because you are completely overwhelmed with all the other options. It, 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 it throws a wrench in that delicate, delicate decision making process that everyone on the show goes through and probably everyone listening goes to in their own way. And I don't want that because it basically means people are buying less Seiko because you're just sitting there nervous, like, is a better one coming out next week? What if I like that one a little bit better? The prices are all over the freaking place. I mean, we play games about it. <laughs> yes, we do. And yeah. So what we're saying to Seiko is a lot of these watches are objectively fantastic, but the context within which they're announced, communicated, priced is causing such a, a, a low degree of authority and credibility. Like there's a lot of trust issues going on right now that like you don't seem stable. And, and that's, I think, what people need from a watch brand is a sort of degree of them looking like they have a plan. They've got to figure it out. They're not going to stress you too much. <laughs> it's stressful to write about Seiko watches. Maybe it's stressful to buy Seiko watches. I'm not I'm not really sure. You know, when we've done events with Seiko, 
it, it's fantastic. People love the stuff, but there's that undercurrent of there's too much freaking models going on. And we need Seiko to scale it back because we can't prevent the community from thinking this is silly. Like we have to report what people are going to be thinking and we can give good advice, but we can't pretend that people aren't just like making fun of this constantly. <laughs> I'm done. But by the time you've listened to this episode, there's probably another Seiko. So you can go and oh, yeah. find oh, yeah. out what that is and decide if you'd rather buy that. Further from last week's show this week, Luxury Bazaar. So that's Roman Scharf and Dave Portnoy from Brick Watch Company have done a video together. It's worth a listen and a watch. I'm not sure it's quite as good as everybody thinks it is. It still seems to me a bit kind of gentle but some interesting stuff there particularly about dave's relationship originally with shinoa which we'll come on to in a review later on and if you go to about 10 minutes into the video on youtube then you see one of the watchmakers from luxury bazaar which is roman's company actually take one of the brick watches apart and cost it from first principles gets to about 400 dollars which if it was $400, then a markup to $2,500 is actually not far off industry standard. But I, I have my doubts. I think, I, think, I think if you put a Scotsman or a Yorkshireman, so myself or Simon on this job, we could get this done for less <laughs> than, a lot less than $400. I got a comment here because I think this is a very important point. And I've been in a situation like this many times where someone has tried to start a watch brand or make a new model and it ends up costing them a lot of money to make. And there are certain multiples you need to do. Like, I mean, at a very basic level, you have to charge people more for it than you paid for it or else you're not going to make a profit. So what ends up happening is people get stuck with really low quality watches that cost them a lot of money to make. And yes, if they were a professional outfit and they knew what they were doing, they had great relationships with suppliers, there's no way it would cost that much. But the problem is they're just starting out and all the suppliers screw them over. This is extremely common, extremely common where this happens because the suppliers will pass on very high cost to you. They will force you to charge a huge amount so that you can you cannot be competitive with your product. This happens all the time. So it's it, it can be a trap, a minefield, just to get your watch made at a low price. So I can't comment on what it cost him to make that. But I think what's, what, what the lesson is, is that depending on your relationship with suppliers and your manufacturing strategy, you know, making a crappy watch can be very cheap or very expensive. No. I mean, Dave Porter is not an idiot. And it actually, when they suggest that it cost $400 to make, it's the one thing that they talk about on the channel that he doesn't pick up on so he's quite happy for them to think that this watch costs 400 <laughs> he's like yeah yeah 400 oh, yeah, yeah. to make i think it costs a lot less than that i think his markup's more like 10 times it sounds like he's worked backwards that he's gone and that's possibly why he maybe has been even more screwed over by the suppliers and he's gone to the suppliers and said I want to produce a watch that fits in at kind of two and a half, three thousand dollars, and they've gone, yes, sir, we know exactly what you need for this, and then sold them the bits and assembled it for them in China or Hong Kong or Switzerland, maybe at a push. So it's it's well worth a watch. Good on them both for setting it up. I would rather that it actually been proper journalists rather than other people that sell watches interviewing it's basically people that sell watches interviewing another person trying to sell watches <laughs> but that's that's the shakes that's what we've got go and check it out i think it is uh, worth a look ariel you sent me a very interesting 
press release through the week that relates to a story from uh, last week. And this is my friend and uh, colleague, ambassador with Panerai, Dave Batusta, and Panerai, hot in the heels of our episode last week, sent out a press release, which I get the impression Dave has nothing to do with and can understand why Sylvester Stallone may have been annoyed in that Panerai are putting out press releases pointing out celebrities wearing their watches, not actually doing a deal with said celebrity to then use their name and intellectual property. What do we think? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is you pointed out a very conspicuous Panerai and then Panerai proudly said, oh, our watch is being featured in this film worn, you know, by this actor. And it really begs the question, you know, I, I think that there probably was a degree of placement in there. I don't think that Panerai would necessarily, I mean, they, they might, they might, that would be a ballsy thing for them to do. But I mean, these placements are common. There was nothing that watch had that was in particular related to the storyline or anything like that. So I don't think it was a cast watch. So I think that, that it, it made sense that they might've had some involvement there. I mean, they're trying, they never know what at the end of the day is going to be a good placement or something like that. But I think Panerai as well is trying to figure out like, what is its thing? They, they don't seem to want to go the route of ambassador, <laughs> right? <laughs> Much of the chagrin of, of Mr. Stallone, <laughs> but it's very important for them be like who's who's wearing it so i i, I actually want uh dave bautista to benefit from this i hope he's being paid i really want him to you know have go to this journey because it, it yeah. might be good I, th I think it's actually better for panerai than than for him they they would gain by working with him just because they need some personality now badly yeah i'm curious as to they sent a load of images uh with the press release but the images be <laughs> They, they kind of feel like they're screen captures from someone who sat down and watched the film. <laughs> they're not like Official. images of the Panerai and then two screen captures from the film, one of which doesn't really show the Panerai at all and the other of which is Dave, you know, dying on set in the one clip where you see the watch the clearest. Okay, I, ha so, I have to comment here, because this is sort of a legal thing, right? Because Panerai doesn't have the right yeah. to use the intellectual property. There are <clears throat> exceptions for newsworthiness and stuff like that, but this is pretty much sort of a commercial use. So they'll have to ask the studio for official shots. And sometimes the studio like doesn't care, doesn't have this. So the studio literally just has screenshots at their disposal and will only approve a small number of them. So assuming this was an official thing with uh, whoever made uh -huh. the Glass Onion movie, this is th the low quality of the image is probably related to like, <laughs> that's what they were allowed to use or given. Oh no, the, the press release is a Netflix advert. There's no doubt about that. It's, you know, we wanted to share blah, blah, blah about the watch through the new Netflix blockbuster mystery. The mystery was out on the 23rd and was one of Netflix's top 10 most famous films. I love how the word blockbuster doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's basically a Netflix advert uh, and, a, and is couched as if it was a news article just to get around any particular Maybe there's a bunch of executives at Netflix that are just showing off their new Panerais and very happy. I mean, it could be as simple yep. as that. Could be, could be, could be. <laughs> We had some chrono uses uh, in after last week's show. I'm going to play some audio from Tim. 
Hey guys, this is Tim in Richmond, Virginia. Absolutely love your podcast, and I've been a listener ever since day one. I heard the discussion the other day on uses for chronographs, and it prompted me to call in as I realized I may be one of the few people that actually uses one for a practical purpose. So I work in food manufacturing, which is surprisingly high speed and high stress. So I use a chrono timer every day to track things like uh, line speeds, pieces per minute, uh, downtime events, breaks, and things like that. So I guess I could use a regular stopwatch, but hey, where's the fun in that, right? So anyway, uh, my most worn chronographs include the Casio Royale and my Citizen Suno. Sometimes I wear a Caliber 16 Aqua Racer, which, by the way, I think is an underrated watch. Sorry. Um, I also recently picked up a Bulova Lunar Pilot, and I really love that watch. And every once in a while, I'll break out the Monaco 69 Special Edition that I added to my collection last year. Anyway, thanks for putting on the show, guys, and keep up the great content and great work. Thanks. Okay, so Tim has as a use, basically a, what I'm going to qualify as a work use. So he's timing food production lines. So I think we qualify that as a work use. So if you use your, so Ariel, you were looking for categories. So first one is work. Pippi, who you heard from earlier, also sent in a use, which was that he was bored at an indoor ski slope and so decided to use his chronograph to time how long it took his kid to get from the bottom of the ski slope to the top on the lift so i think board watch geek boredom is another category and after pippy said that i thought wait a minute i think that might end up being the biggest category of chronograph uses among watch geeks that are likely to listen to this show is you're sitting somewhere really bored you're waiting for somebody in the shops you're sitting in the car you're waiting for your child and you say, you know what? I'm just going to time how long it takes for that to go to there. So I, okay, so I've ident- identified two. So we have to we have yep. to like make a list of these categories. So yeah, I've yeah, identified yeah. We need, two. We need five or six. We've identified two. One of them is like fidget chronograph. Like I'm literally fidget timing spinner, nothing. Yeah. I just like the buttons. And the yeah, other yeah. one is timing inconsequential events. Like how long it takes <laughs> to go up the escalator, something like that, right? You've invented a third one there. So there is the timing inconsequentials there's the just a fidget you just say you're not timing anything you're just playing with the buttons yeah and the other is tim has come up with a genuine use that on at his work he does time some production lead times for workflows on food lines and all the rest of it so what would we call that like actually using it at work actual work use so you might be a doctor maybe you use your chronograph for something to do with pulsometers i'm not sure that you were you're uh professional indemnity insurer would really cover you if you told them that you'd timed the heartbeat using your uh, vintage <laughs> Daytona <laughs> rather than the £50,000 machine <laughs> that does your heartbeat. So work, work use. Yeah, because it's not like, it's not really, but we're not really using it for work. It's like a toy you're using at work. Well, okay, but you know, any excuse. <laughs> it's like saying like, I took my diving watch actually underwater. Like you didn't actually go diving with it, but you put it in a sink or something, you know, like yeah, okay, I did the actually, thing. Yeah, so maybe it's an inconsequential timing, e.g. chairlift, and a consequential timing, E.g. used at work, so you kind of justified it. And then the fidget spinner. So we've got three categories. The fidget spinner chronograph, the inconsequential timing, and the consequential timing. <sighs> but we want some more. So send us in send us in some audio or get in touch with the show podcast at a blog to watch. That's a cool name for a collection, like Omega Insequential Inconsequential Timer. I think that's that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Master the Inconsequential Graph. <laughs> 
if Ed from Moser is listening, Ed, we've got you a new yes. theme for your yes. Swiss icons. Watch. Master Inconsequential. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually thinking of a chronograph that has a bunch of extra pushers on it because it's just fun to push. It's not really sure <laughs> yeah. what they do. Or just, just break the watch. Things to click. Or just break. They they make like some of them make a noise. Some of them you don't click, you spin it. I ended up turning one of those like toddler toys, but in wristwatch format, so, right? That's cool. it's just like a, a bunch of it. random crowns that operate in different ways. Just shuffle the hands. Whoever makes the bop, it needs to go into a collaboration with Omega. Yeah. No, do I want to spin something? Do I want to turn something? Do I want to wind something? Do I want to press on something? Do I want to pull on something? Do I want to unscrew something? Yeah. Just whatever you feel like doing, yeah. there's a we, way to do that on your watch. We are quite proud at a blog to watch that we don't sell watches. We only report them. But I might make an exception yeah. for us producing the bop it watch. The bop it watch! <laughs> I love it. Good stuff. <laughs> We should probably review a couple of watches. Mm. First up, Shinoa. We touched very briefly on them before. Ariel, you've been engaging with Shinoa quite closely in recent months. This is the Shinoa Runwell Station Agent with assembled in America automatic movement. This is probably significant. Oh, I had to change that. Not assembled in America. Cased in America. <laughs> Cased in America. Not, it wasn't clear. No, it was. I made a mistake. They're working on doing more assembly of automatic movements. A few that a few they do, but it's not entirely there yet. It was just not entirely clear. But anyways, but but this is clearly Shinoa trying to get into that market. Obviously, the American restrictions. Oh, it's a great watch. It's a lovely watch, and it's the latest version of the Runwell automatic that has. As you said, the the Solita automatic. I forgot the 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 caliber. It has a subsidiary second style, so it looks a little bit more retro. I mean, the Runwell is an interesting design. It's very deceptively simple, but it's got a lot of nuance to it. It's sort of inspired by um, pocket watch, wristwatch conversions, and it, it it has an interesting Americana ness to this. This was just under fifteen hundred dollars. I think fourteen hundred and fifty bucks. I think that's a good price point. You know, when Shinola started a couple of years ago, they had quartz watches this price point. And what I love that they're doing is they're offering a much better timepiece uh, with an enthusiast grade movement, um, a lot, a, a great in-house made strap, obviously assembled in America. And they haven't really increased the price point, which I think is an indicator that the brand is moving very much in the enthusiast direction. So I like this watch a whole lot. Um, they got some other really good, good ones coming out. In my opinion, Shinola is increasingly going to be a force to be reckoned with and is kind of the only like kind of serious American luxury company right now because they, they mm -hmm. don't just make watches. They make a bunch of other stuff. Tiffany and Company, as we know, was sold to French uh, LVMH. So there are sort of a deficiency of these. I don't even know what to call it. It's, it is a luxury brand. It's a sort of high-end lifestyle brand that has an anchor product, which is watches, but they sell you know, all kinds of interesting things. I, I find them fascinating and it's taken them about 10 years to really sort of establish a groove. I mean, it's a 45 mil watch. I think it's got strong radiomere vibes in mm -hmm. terms of the numerals, the wire lugs. Okay, it's it's a round K shape rather than the kind of more Panerai-esque, cushiony type thing, but certainly got some strong Panerai vibes in terms of size. And as you say, for $1,450, this is not too shabby at all. David, any strong Shinola thoughts? 
I, I haven't had much experience, which I know, actually. Uh, I quite like the way this looks. Uh, I think uh, what Ariel is saying is absolutely true. Uh, the company has really come a long way, and I also believe that it, it, it tells us to be a, a little bit more patient, not just us, but, you know, like the, the greater uh, watch enthusiast community with brands. Because it is true, it might take 10 years to figure something like this out. And when you look at the final product that, that came out at the end of this 10-year process, you see, oh, well, it's so straightforward. But it's it's not, you know, it takes so much organization to go from from a novice brand again, like what we talked about with brick watches, that it's so easy to get, you know, just really screwed by your suppliers and stuff to something that is an established brand that stayed afloat for all this time and has managed to fine tune its products. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, they have certainly come a long way, and, and it shows. Very quickly before we go this week, the Chopard LUC Urushi and Happy Sport Year of the Rabbit watches. This is Chinese New Year, Year of the Rabbit. David, you wrote this article. Go check out the pictures on the website. But really my question, David, is, and Ariel, we see every Chinese New Year brands producing things in relation to it. This year it's rabbits. Yeah. Are they really big sellers? Like, for I sure. have no feeling for what happens in the Chinese market. But is this really, does this really do it for the Chinese market? They, they go out and they flock to buying these things because there seems to be brands producing things with rabbits on them this year everywhere. They're actually producing them like rabbits. Would, would they do it if, if it was unsuccessful? Maybe they would do it once, but the fact that we've been seeing them do this for so many years, every year on a yearly basis uh, or on an annual basis, I think that proves that it, it definitely works. I mean, these are expensive dials. Uh, that are difficult to make, and it's not like you it's can. Beautiful watch. And it's not like you can sell them next year, right? <laughs> and here's just a random rabbit watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ulysses has been doing stuff like that for for so long, and and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But but here it's very annual in, in a way. And even if we discount the, the, the Chinese market as it is and, and, and those following the, the Chinese calendar, which is, of course, a, a huge market, there's also a number yeah. of people who are fans of a brand and avid collectors. And they are like, I, I have to have this fancy cool thing from this brand in my collection. And they go out and maybe they were not born in the, in the uh, year of the rabbit or something like that. But they, they collect these hand-painted dials or something like that. And the, the craftsmanship here and, and, and the value in this watch is, is huge. And the price is like $26,200 for a gold uh, dress watch with, with such a beautiful hand-painted dial and an in-house movement. I don't think that that's, that's a preposterous price at all. What you touch on is maybe where I'm really aiming at, which is to what extent is, is non-Chinese New Year celebrating watch collectors appropriating this theme for their own collections? As you say, that actually it's a, ve it's a beautiful watch and people collect them and actually the fact that it's the year of the rabbit means very little to them it's just a nice watch and so they buy it i'm just curious whether anyone's got a feel for the balance of how many of these sales go to people who celebrate or work under the chinese calendar versus those that just like pretty things these are mostly for the the chinese market or people that are of chinese descent and and have value uh, for the sort of animal-based Zodiac system. Chopard has been very consistent in doing this like all the time. Several years ago, especially when China was a bigger market, there was so much more emphasis from the brands on making 
you know, the year of the this watch, the year of the that watch. Swatch Group was all over it, for example. Everyone had their things. Um, there was a ton of this. And so now Chopard remains one of the few that continues to do it. Um, I believe that they get a lot of marketing value out of it. So there's probably these consumer publications out there in China that want to say like, hey, here's some Year of the Rabbit luxuries. And maybe people don't end up buying that particular Chopard, but it's you know, as David said, the dials really are lovely and beautiful. And I think that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make a beautiful composition that some people buy, but that mostly get attention. They can, you know, it's, um, it's sort of like when Coca-Cola does the Christmas ad, right? Like they want to do something relevant for something that's happening. That's seasonal. They want to be connected for that, but they're not really trying to say like, just buy Coca-Cola at Christmas. And so I think that that's part of what they're doing. It's, 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 cultural integration it's a way of saying Chopard just like you is celebrating this occasion this holiday this you know whatever and I think that that's sort of it is it's saying that you know Chopard is part of this culture and participates in it and again I think that that's that's really the larger reason why they do this great well go check out David's article on the website check out all things a blog to watch at a blog to watch.com the show is now on YouTube so if you prefer to listen on YouTube then go to their blog to watch channel you'll find several thousand videos there <laughs> Uh, of all sorts of interest, so go and check out the back catalogue there as well. So, gentlemen, anything happening with you guys this week of note? Nope. Living boring <laughs> lives. Nothing going on. <laughs> no, well, we're just getting... We are Finally, we are liaising uh, with, with people who are back in the office after, after a long, long holiday uh, break. And we have begun... Um, you know, we are starting to plan our travels to Watches and Wonders and actually a number of other occasions, sometimes like previews and other stuff for uh, for Watches and Wonders. So, yeah, it's, it's heating up and honestly, I can't wait <laughs> to finally be there and, and, and just get on with it. Um, yeah, so, so the, the year is just heating up at the moment and uh, yeah, there's a lot of planning going on at this point. That is us for this week. It probably just remains for me to say Happy New Year to Ryan Reynolds in order to show that I haven't forgotten either to say Happy New Year again for the rest of this year or to do a shout out to Ryan Reynolds. Well, thank you very much for listening this week. Do listen again next week. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone.